Good evening. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here. Flying solo tonight. No science advisor, Matt Moniz. No psychic medium, Stephanie Burke. It's just me and you. And it's the perfect night to get spooky. It's uh, it's a little rainy, a little snowy, a little stormy, windy. I can hear the wind howling outside the studio. It's the right kind of night to be talking about the paranormal, and that's what we do each and every Saturday night. And if you have never heard the program before, if this is your first time, well, we've been doing this for now for almost 17 years. We'll celebrate our 17th anniversary in a couple of weeks. But we like to take an approach to the world of the paranormal that might be a little different than you hear other places. Way, way, way back in 2005, when we announced that this show would be starting in January of 2006, the local newspaper, the Standard Times, back when they had reporters and covered things, they did an article on the debut, the impending debut of the South Coast's first paranormal radio program. And they asked me, the, the, the writer asked me, what's your approach? How do you handle the topics that you plan to discuss? And think about, the, this is 2005 I'm talking about. This isn't now where last night and, and this morning I have CNN on, on the TV and they're having serious discussions about UFOs and the fact that out of these reports that happened over the last since, since March of 2021, this is the report that came out this week. It's, it's uh, the number of reports that have happened on in, in military airspace since March of 2021. I think it was 171 reports, and out of those, half of them they could not explain away. So they just admitted in this report that there's whatever half of 171 is that are legitimately unidentified flying objects, or is the term they're using now, unidentified aerial phenomena, UAPs. Now, that doesn't mean that they're aliens, and in fact, in no way in this report did they say anything about it being aliens. But it is something unidentifiable, and that's that's somewhere. That's progress when you consider where we were 17 years ago. But when the reporter asked me way back then, what's your approach going to be, I just looked at it simply as, if we, if we don't take it seriously enough, People are going to think we're nuts, and then it's a goof, and then it's a joke. But if we take it too seriously, people are going to think that we're nuts. So you have to strike a balance. And I think that we've done that over the, the course of the existence of the show. We've tried to strike that balance. Sometimes we have a lot of fun, and we goof around. Sometimes the show can be very serious. Tonight, I think you'll have something that is going to be very uplifting and, and very insightful for you. Because tonight we're going to be talking about the psychology of the soul. Tonight we're going to be talking to Reverend Karen Herrick, PhD, and we're going to be talking with her about the decade she has spent researching spiritual phenomena, how this information impacts mental health and overall well-being, and the need for educating mental health professionals on these experiences. So we're starting to understand that the, the there is a mixture of mental health, of science, of the physical, the emotional, and the metaphysical. 
And so we'll be talking with Dr. Herrick about this. And I, and I think this is probably something that had, you know, we're going to talk about some of the giants of psychology. Had this been something that was a little bit more freely discussed during their day and age, who knows where we could be these days with our interaction with the spirit world, with our understanding of the spirit world and, and what we think that the soul is all about. It's not something that is a foreign idea to us. We've always known that there's something more to mankind, to existence, to living, to being. But we've struggled to find proof of that. And I've been somebody who has been saying, you know, I always like to say that when I started doing this show, if you ask me what my goal was, I would say, I hope to be the person to prove to the world that the paranormal exists. I want to be the person that comes up with, I go, I, I go out there and I catch that one piece of, of, of data, what some people call evidence. I have that experience. I have that video, that audio, whatever it might be that I can show to everybody. And they say, whoa, I, I didn't believe in ghosts until now. I didn't believe in psi phenomena until now. I didn't believe in UFOs until now or Bigfoot or any of this stuff until now. And I slowly learned over time that that's not what my job is. That my job is to foster these discussions, to, to, to bring guests like Dr. Herrick, people who can talk about things that you might not have ever pondered before, and implant those seeds of thought into your mind. doesn't have to be belief, but it has to at least be contemplation of some of these ideas. And then the other side of it is in the, you know, the different events that we do and bringing people out on, on paranormal investigations. It's to have individuals have those experiences that help them believe in it. Because I can show you the best piece of uh, video or the best photograph or play you the best audio clip that the world has ever known. If you are already predetermined not and predestined not to believe in the existence of these phenomena, then no matter what I show you, it's not going to change your mind. But if I can take you somewhere and have you have that experience, these experiences that I have repeatedly and go through the process with you of, well, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. So it must be this. If we can eliminate all the normal and we're left with the paranormal and then that makes you scratch your head and say, huh, well, I guess my mind has changed. Then that's that's all that I can do. And it was probably maybe about 11 years ago when I kind of had that that epiphany. Being at the Houghton Mansion in North Adams, Massachusetts, you can't investigate there anymore. But at the time, it was a very popular place for investigation. It's a little bit of a hike. It's about four, four and a half hours from the South Coast. So it's, you know, it's a trip to get out there. But we ran an event out there and we had a gentleman who came and and uh, and I put on this event with Jeff Belanger as part of our Legend Trips events. And Jeff tells this story all the time. There was a lawyer who came along 
with his wife because she was into this stuff and he didn't believe any of it. And he ended up having the most profound experience out of anybody. And it turned him from a skeptic to a believer in the matter of one night. And that's when I said, gee, that's what we can do with this. That's how we can, you know, you, you, you can't change the world all in one shot. You've got to do it one paranormal experience and one paranormal experiencer at a time. And I, I think that it's just a matter of the fact that there has been so much attention paid to this topic over the last 15, 16, 17, 18, 20 years that we have seen it become more mainstream. And in fact, in the materials that they, they send out for Dr. Herrick, they say a recent Gallup poll that was conducted in 2022 shows that 41% of Americans have had a profound spiritual awakening. That's, that's something that goes beyond the paranormal. That could be maybe they had a ghost experience. Maybe they encountered a deceased loved one. But maybe they just woke up one morning and looked around and said, there's got to be something more than this. The beauty and splendor of, of this world and how it all works together has to be more than just an accident of evolution or the product of, you know, it, it's a beautiful sunset, a beautiful sunset because it was designed to be that way. Or is it just the product of how the light hits our eyes? You know, there's, there's got to be something more. And that's not even including the Gallup polls that say upwards of 70% of Americans believe in some kind of paranormal phenomena. That's, uh, and, it's not, and that doesn't mean that they all believe in ghosts or they all believe in UFOs, but some of them might believe that people can have near-death experiences. Some of them might believe that people can have premonitions. So there's ver variety, a, a variety of ways of defining the paranormal. But if you'd conducted that same poll in 1992 or even 2002, you would have been in, what, the 20%? The 30% range of people who would admit to believing in such a thing. But now the proliferation of television shows about it, of news reports about it, magazine articles, serious books. I mean, there's, there's more belief, I think, than any time that I can remember. But I wouldn't say than ever before. We've gone through periods of this over time in our history as a people, as a society, as a species. And they always, you know, those, those who look at the trends of paranormal belief and, and belief in the spiritual say there's usually um, tragedies associated with a rise in a leaning, a leaning on the spiritual. So we saw the rise of the spiritualist era. It happened, you know, it started to build momentum before the Civil War, but the Civil War really kicked it into high gear because people were losing loved ones at such a rapid pace and they wanted to believe that there was something more. 
So spiritualism rises up. That dies down again. We get into World War I. We start to see a spike in those kind of beliefs again. That dies down again. And you go through the Great Depression. There's not a lot of belief happening in that kind of stuff because people are just desperate at that point. They're not really putting a lot of faith in the other side, but you still have pockets of belief here and there. World War II comes along, you get another big surge in belief. Then that wanes a bit. You come back into the 60s and the tumultuous times that we had from the 60s and the 70s, and that's where you give birth to things like Hans Holzer, and you give birth to things like, I don't know, In Search Of, and all of these different things that fed into it. And then you get into the 80s and it starts to die down again. The 90s come along. We start to get that that um, that cynicism, that skepticism that defined Generation X in the 90s. So you get the X-Files coming out. You have distrust of the government. You have people looking at this and saying they're lying to us. There's more. They're keeping this stuff under wraps. And you have another renaissance of paranormal belief. And while that should have ebbed again at some point, 9-11 comes along. And that keeps it around, and we haven't really lost it since then. Obviously, the COVID-19 pandemic certainly kicked in some spiritual belief and in, in, in want, wanting to believe in it. People being home and experiencing more that was happening in their homes and seeing things in the sky and all of those kind of things, it it, it only helped continue to foster this. So we've, we've gotten to the point where the ebb and flow is no longer ebbing. We're just in a continuous flow, and that flow... Maybe going uphill. We may be heading toward a peak, and there may be there may be a valley at some point. But it just seems to be building and going forward. And that's what we can talk about as part of our discussion tonight. We can talk about how the psychology of the soul can allow us to continue to have these conversations. That we no longer have to look at this as being something that isn't real or something that isn't true. We can get past the if and we can get into more of the what, the why, and the how. And so we will certainly do that as part of our discussion tonight. Uh, so we will be talking with Reverend Karen Herrick, PhD. We usually say if you have questions, you know, that you can call in. Uh, 508-996-0500. We also have the opportunity. You can ask questions on Twitter as well. If you tweet me uh, at Tim Weisberg, you can tweet me there and I'll, um, I'll, I'll answer your questions. But a, a great way to get involved in the discussion. Download the WBSM app. Go to your app store for whatever kind of device you have. Download, look up WBSM and you will find the WBSM app. Download that. And then when you open it up, there's a button on there that says App Chat right in the center of your screen. And what that is, is that's a text messaging system that allows you to text us directly into the studio and you can pose your question that way and we will ask it uh, on the air of our guests. So there's all different ways of getting in touch with us, uh, but I love the App Chat feature because it means that, you know, even if you're working or if you're home with the family or anything that you really couldn't call in on the phone, you can still get your questions in uh, for our guest. So let's get right into it with our guest, uh, Reverend Karen E. Herrick, Ph.D., uh, 
completed her master's degree at Rutgers University in Social Work and Ph.D. at Union Institute and University. She's the founder of the Center for Children of Alcoholics and has shared her clinical expertise for 30 years in private practice by lecturing on dysfunctional addictive homes, dissociation, and grief and loss from a Jungian perspective. Her decades of research consists of paranormal experiences that have been widely reported and appear to be fairly common. These phenomena have been the subject of psychical research for well over a century, and their existence is reasonably established. So uh, we're talking to her about all that and more. Let's welcome her into the program. Good evening, Dr. Herrick. How are you? Oh, hold on here. There we go. Now I press the right button. How are you tonight? <laughs> I'm good, thank you. And thank you for joining us. I was just I was just kind of discussing here to open the show how much in the last you know we'll we'll be celebrating the 17th anniversary of this show in a couple of weeks, but how much things have changed in that time in terms of how more open people are about their beliefs in spirituality, in ideas of the paranormal, in ideas of of anything that, you know, 20 years ago, people might have really kept to themselves for fear of seeming um, vulnerable to, for, for believing in these things. And now the belief in them has become a strength for folks. Right, right. It really has. It's wonderful. I, I started studying um, William James and Carl Jung's uh, postmasters because I read about their interest in mediumship and um, clairvoyance and uh, because of their personal experiences. Um, William James lost the toddler's son, and Mrs. James started going to mediums to find out where her child was, and then she asked her husband to come with her. And then, of course, he found Mrs. Piper, his white crow, who was so um, accurate that, you know, they went to her forever and ever. And she was tested by a lot of, um, you know, early people that were testing mediumship. And then Carl Jung had a mother who was psychic, and he said she was a pretty good mother, but that every once in a while... He would just blurt out something that had nothing to do with the conversation. And he said, also, you didn't go in her room at night because there were lots of noises in there and sounds and voices. Um, so they both had these experiences um, where they wanted to study consciousness of other types, not just your simple waking consciousness. And so that's now called transpersonal psychology, where dreaming and meditation, all these different spiritual experiences count as you know, stages of consciousness. And, and I would have to think that if you, you know, if they had been able to, to study this more in depth and if this had been able to be more of a focus, and of course part of that is the science of it wasn't being accepted much at that time, but if they had, you know, we would be leaps and bounds ahead of where we are in the understanding of all of this. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And we need more, we need clairvoyant researchers now to study how we leave the body and, you know, uh, near-death experiences and out-of-body experiences, uh, because that really helps people understand where you go when you die. And as Freud said, I don't like to quote him often, but he did say that, um, you know, people were afraid of death, and that's why they didn't want to talk about it. And, of course, people that go to the other side and have a near-death experience, um, you know, they see the light and um, flowers, music, their um, ancestors who have so-called died. And they don't want to come back, but they're told it's their time and they can't stay there. And what, what happens to them in, in that moment when they come back is they're not afraid of death anymore, which is wonderful. So the more that I can teach uh, people what, what it's like over there, what they have brought back, the information, um, they can have a life where they don't have to be afraid of death. Well, I think I think a big part of understanding a lot of this, and it's something that I've 
I've really gotten into over the last couple of years paying attention more to and thinking more about, and it's made a difference in the way that I approach a lot of this, is it all kind of starts with our, our idea of what consciousness is. Yes, that's right. So how would you describe that? How would you define consciousness, um, you know, thinking about how it needs to be defined at a deeper level than how we do now? Well, consciousness is what we see and feel. So one of the things that I think would be important is to tell them about the three metaphysical systems that kind of are going on all around us and that um, James and Jung believed in. So first metaphysical system is the sensory system. Well, you and I are talking tonight. And we're very rational, and there's past, present, and future, and that's where we live most of the time. And then the second metaphysical system is the clairvoyant system, where you could have telepathy and precognition and prayer and contemplation, and um, where you come to a place where they say you're in the now, where you feel calm and peaceful and serene, centered and connected. And... um, so that's the clairvoyant reality, where that's where everybody goes when they have an out-of-body or a near-death, um, or um, go to church and, you know, have this sense of peace and they feel connected for the first time. Um, whatever it is, you can have all different kinds of spiritual experiences. And uh, my definition is a transcendent relationship between a person and a higher being that sometimes goes beyond a specific religious affiliation. Um, so ghosts and mental telepathy and mediumship and visits from deceased relatives. And then, so you have sensory system, the clairvoyant system, and then you have the trans, a trans psychic reality. And that's where miracles happen. And um, doctors report, I think a less uh, statistic, you can't quote me on this, but I think it was like 50% of doctors have seen miracles. And um, the Catholic Church has, has proven 70 miracles. Um, that you could go in and figure out how they—they'd be very glad to tell you how they do that, but it takes them years and years and years. Um, so if we have these three systems kind of floating around us, then it's really easy to go to another level of consciousness. Uh, well, not easy, but um, we can. We can go to another level, and I believe that the soul uh, is in charge of the kinds of experiences that we have, and. Um, Carl Jung believed that you had to find out what your soul purpose was. That, that was the purpose of his therapy. And then you had to live your soul purpose and live this life. That's what you were here for. And would, would, would finding that automatically give you a, a greater sense of purpose, a greater sense of self? Or is even that a struggle, you know, to, to be able to, to fulfill whatever that is to its maximum potential? Yeah, um, I think so many people, I mean, that come to me for therapy because I'm mostly Jungian, um, and I tell them that. We have to find your sole purpose, and they're like, what? You know, and um, but we do that, um, you know, with the five layers that he talked about of, of the unconscious that we all have. And the first layer is your life, what happened to you. Um, the second layer is um, your parents' lives and how they affected you. Uh, the third layer is DNA, your ancestors you don't even know. And he believed that they left jobs for us to finish. And it was our job to figure out what that was, if that was so in our family. And then your culture or your country, how did that affect you? And then on the bottom was your total flesh self. And, of course, he believed in past lives. So 
you had those memories also in your unconscious that were connected with the soul that could come up in dreams and all different types of things. So it is a very long process um, because if you just do those five layers and we get down to the soul, which to me means that you need to know, get your personality uh, more in touch with, with what your soul purpose is. And, and of course that then goes to, well, how do I become more spiritual in life? Um, because the, that's what part of the soul is, is the spirit that's in us, in every one of us. And um, so, you know, it's, it's having those quiet times. And what I, what I think about is turning off your thinking ability uh, because you have to, you don't think. If, if you're going to become more spiritual, you need to get out in nature. You need to walk the dog more. Um, you need to meditate. I mean, whatever it is for you, yoga, um, some people is going to the gym, but, I, uh, you know, even there, how noisy is that? And can you really get into yourself? Um, but people need to have a lot of spiritual things in their life in order to really get in touch with their soul, I think. Yeah, well, you know, talking about the five layers, it, you really do have to get past all of these things that are coming at you from others, and whether it be others that you knew or others that you didn't know, but there's a lot of these outside influences that are happening that you have to kind of, uh, you know, peel through. It, is it? Yeah. But is it, though, that, you know, do you have to, to, to figure all of those out? before you can dive into that or is it you know that once you dive into it maybe that that side of it makes more sense because maybe the, those pressures are being put on you because of what your purpose will be oh that's true i don't think there's one way to do it um you know i think everybody has a different way and um it, it, that's but once you start i think investigating the unconscious and going to therapy or whatever it is you do to try to figure out yourself if you're on that road um, the unconscious, I believe, has an intelligence of, it, of its own, and it will help you. Mm-hmm. And even even Freud said, um, if you had a question and you didn't have an answer, if you wrote down the question before you went to sleep, that you, you would dream about it, or you would get the answer the next day. Um, so, I mean, he didn't consider that spiritual because he, did, he felt, you know, religion was just neurotic. Um, but... Um, so even he had a way that you could get an answer if you had a problem. Well, I, I definitely, we're going to get into during the course of this discussion tonight, I want to get into how, uh, you know, this needs to be something that the mental health professionals of today look deeper into. But I want to talk a little bit about your background. How did you get involved in this pursuit? I know you said that, you know, you you come from the Jungian approach, but how did this all start for you? First of all, how did you get into the field? And then how did you go down this path within the field? Well, I started out in an alcoholic family, <laughs> and uh, that's a sure way <laughs> of uh, trial by fire, um, humble beginnings and all that. And I didn't believe in God. Uh, my mother was Catholic. My father was Protestant, and um, we went to the Protestant church. My mother uh, didn't drive, and so, therefore, she couldn't take us to church. But once she married a Protestant, she never went uh, to her church again, which I think was such a shame for her. Um, and she never talked to a priest about it either. So anyway, I was raised in upstate New York, um, near Albany, and it was beautiful there. Nature, I felt, was um, had some kind of a power, kind of like the American Indians, and the wind was a force, and 
I knew something created this beautiful world, but I wasn't sure what it was. Um, and it certainly wasn't when my grandmother or my father would drop us off at the Protestant church and he would leave us there most mornings and not come back. And then we'd walk down the street to one, one of our aunt's houses and my mother would call around and find him to come get us. So, so I started out like that when I got married and I've been married and divorced twice. I had three girls, two from the first marriage and one from the second. Um, I went to, um, the Methodist church and uh, cause I believed, you know, that everybody should, you know, do this with your kids and teach them that there was a higher power of some type. Um, and then, uh, I got divorced from an alcoholic because, and that's something that you have to, uh, understand too, that your parents unlived lives really affect you as a child. So my mother married an alcoholic and she never left. And I used to think, used to say, well, we have to ask your father. And I'd say, why? You know, most of the time he, he doesn't know where he is and um, we're trying to get him out of bed so he can go to work. And why do we have to ask him? And so I remember at 11 thinking, if I ever marry an alcoholic, I'm not staying. And of course, in my second marriage, I married an alcoholic who looked a lot different uh, than my father. So people would say, well, why didn't you know? Why didn't you see the signs? Well, my father was a truck driver, and he went to the bar at night. He didn't come home till 3 in the morning. And uh, my husband was a sales manager, and he came home every night at 6 o'clock and went straight to the bar in the library and drank, started mm. to drink. And um, But didn't look like my father, especially in the first few years of our marriage. But eventually I realized, oh, this isn't good. This is the same disease. Um, and I kind of, you know, went online, read articles and stuff, but then decided I was going to go to, back to college because I'd always wanted a college degree and my father didn't believe in educating women. Um, anyway, so I started going to college and um, then when I finally said to my um, second husband, who I thought our marriage would last forever, um, he told me one day we were having an argument, which I tried not to argue with him when he was drinking it like my mother had. And, um, but I, I was one night and he stopped right in the middle of the conversation. And, you know, sometimes when you're arguing with an alcoholic, their eyes aren't even, they're glazed over. They're not even there. Yeah. Um, so he said, um, I have something to tell you. And if you ever repeat it, I'll deny it. But you, I can live without alcohol. I can't. Wow. And so I felt like I'd been slapped. Right. But I thought. Oh my God, that's what I've been worried about. That he wasn't going to choose me. So now I have permission because he's not. So then I started, you know, making plans and um, it took me about two years to, you know, to get a divorce. Um, and after that, and that was because my mother never got one. But then I didn't know that. I didn't know that what your parents don't do, you are almost set to do. Uh, because I could see as a kid, why were we staying there, you know? Um, and then I, when I went to Rutgers, they had a minor in alcohol studies. And I thought, well, maybe I'll take this minor. And it's the only minor in the country in alcohol studies. I mean, what a nice synchronicity that was. And then um, when I graduated, I, I have, there's a local college here, Brookdale Community College. And I taught a class there for a couple of years on alcohol, drugs, and human behavior, because I thought, why don't people know what an alcoholic is? 
because at that time, you know, we didn't have the education we have now. I should say things have changed. And so I wanted to teach it. And, you know, I gave college credits or the college did. And then we gave CEU credits, which was certified alcoholism counselors could come and take that course. So um, I really felt like I'd given back um, from the alcoholic family, but it taught me so much. And when I started my private practice, um, I, what did I do? Oh, I remember. Um, I started private practice and uh, I was working in a school system. So, you know, private practice part-time and you build it up. But um, I was dating a guy who worked for um, National Council on Alcoholism, which they had a, an office downtown in Red Bank. And um, they, they would go out to schools and different organizations and teach about the disease concept of alcoholism. And so I, I happened to have had a, I had three girls. So my youngest daughter was home. She was 12 and she was, she had an alcoholic parent and she had a alcohol therapist for a mother and a social worker. So I thought I need to take her somewhere where there's kids like her. And there was a national conference that was being held in Florida by health communications who published a lot of books about the disease of alcohol. And they had a group for kids, teenagers, from 12 to 16. And so I, I told her that I, she could go to a conference with me and she could go to this group and then I would take her to Disney World. <laughs> so she said yes. And we went and she was in the group and um, hopefully it helped her a lot because she was very resistant to knowing that her father was alcoholic. And so I got there, though, because of that and um, took all these classes and learned even more than I learned at Rutgers about the alcoholic family. And so when I came back, uh, this gentleman that I was dating said, oh, God, we need to do something. We need to put on some kind of public service about uh, the disease of alcohol because we don't have any money. So, um, so I said, oh, I said, well, I just went to all these classes and I type over 100 words a minute. I always took my PC with me and uh, I said, I could, I could give these workshops. I know how to do that. And um, so he said, really? So we sat down all summer, um, had lunch, and, and we designed this uh, six-week course, I think it was, on um, the disease of alcoholism in the family. And, you know, the kids in the family and how the roles that they take on. And, and it was just so much great information. And the first night, and we publicized it, I think, for maybe three or four weeks. The first night, we had 95 people come. And the second night, 125. And the third night, 140. I mean... It, it just went. And um, then I did the same series at local college. And I had people coming to the private practice immediately. So it was like it was meant to be, you know. It was the purpose. It was right there. There was the purpose right there, yeah. And then I started, um, somebody said to me, well, you know, you like um, this and you like that. And uh, do you know about Carl Jung? Because he worked a little bit with Bill Wilson about the founding of AA. And um, no, and. They said, well, I thought, I think he'd like that. So I joined the Educacy Foundation in Virginia Beach, and he was the first trans medium, American trans medium, and he used to help people who had medical problems, you know, before penicillin, and uh, he would give them these, go into trance and, and, and tell them in two hours uh, about their life, and maybe they had this back problem because they were a Roman soldier in another life, and they had had a lance put in their back and all this, and his secretary or his wife would take dictation because when a, tr a medium's in trance, they don't remember what they say when they wake up. 
And, and so he was reading all these things that he was saying, and he didn't even believe in past lives. But he started to study them at the University of Virginia. Um, there was a gentleman that was working on past lives, and he would go to India every summer. And um, Edgar Casey started to know there is such a thing. And um, so anyway, I went to classes down there. Like I'd go at Easter time, and you'd have three or four days with people, and, and then you'd come home, you know, Sunday afternoon. And uh, you just sat and learned about, you know, Carl Jung mostly and William James because Edgar Casey believed in spiritual experiences. And um, then, let's see, I decided to, to go into private practice. And when I did, um, somebody, see, these people come into your life, right? So I had tea with somebody at a conference, and she said, oh, if you like Claudia Black, and she wrote a lot of books about children of alcoholics, you'll love Jacqueline Small. And I said, who's Jacqueline Small? Well, she's a therapist in Texas, and she teaches you about this breath work, right? So, okay, so I never heard of her, but I never saw the lady again. And um, six months later, this this um, pamphlet comes across my desk from in the mail about Jacqueline Small being in Connecticut. And it was a week training on transpersonal psychology. And I had read a little bit about that, and I knew Carl Jung and William James were considered the first transpersonal psychologists, even though they never said that. Um, so I called them up, and they said, well, yeah, you could come. Uh, this is a nine-month program, and it costs $5,000. So I didn't have $5,000 at that time. And they said, well, there's a guaranteed student loan, and if you uh, fill out the application, you're guaranteed to get it. I said, you're kidding. No. So anyway, I said, all right, send me the paperwork. So I filled it out. I got the $5,000. And um, so I'm driving there in August for a week. And my it happened synchronistically, which I believe in, that my uh, youngest daughter, who was still home, was going to sleepaway camp. And so I could be away for a week. And um, I'm driving to Connecticut from New Jersey. I'm thinking, what am I doing? I could stay home all by myself for a week. <laughs> and <laughs> where am I going? What is this all about? And then I get to this, um, it's a former nunnery in Connecticut, beautiful on the water in Connecticut. And uh, the, the nun uh, comes out and says, well, you know, you're here early, it's 9 o'clock, and it doesn't start till 3. Do you want to go to your room and you could take a nap or something? And I said, sure. So she said, it's in the lion's wing. And I thought, okay. So I went and got my stuff, and I'm following her. And um, I thought L-I-O-N-F, but it was L-Y-O-N-F, which is was one of my great-great-grandmother's maiden names. So I thought, oh, that's a sign. This is a sign. I'm supposed to be here. Because when I first came into the courtyard, there was this woman standing looking at this tree, and she was saying something like, this is the kind of tree I was in a past life. And I, I didn't believe in past lives or anything, and I'm thinking, oh, what did I sign up for? <laughs> you know, this is really going to be weird. But it wasn't. There were 21 of us, and and they were doing holotropic breath work. I didn't know what that was either. And we didn't breathe until Wednesday when they said, you lay down, you have a partner, and they're going to um, play music that activate your chakra system, uh, which is um, in an invisible system that goes along the vagus nerve in your body. And, um, and uh, you know, people have all kinds of things happen to them, different kinds of experiences. And um, so I asked my partner, he said he had done this before and his hands and feet got real tightened up and stuff. And I said, could you let me go first? Cause I have no idea what I'm doing. 
and I don't want to get an idea from you. I just want to do it. Sure. So I went first. And so they play this music. They start, of course, with the drumming music of the bass chakra. And it just, you know, you get all, oh, and before that, they did um, a meditation. And then the last thing you're told is, don't think, just breathe. Mm. So I never in my life been told not to think because that's how we survive, right? So um, don't think, just breathe. Okay, well, I, I'm good at following directions. So I'm laying there and you breathe forcefully out. And um, and I realize it's big, it's breath work now. But anyway, so I'm breathing and all kinds of things are going on in my body. I'm feeling good. And um, and then uh, eventually I, I pull my legs up like in the birthing position. And I feel this breath go through my body and out my mouth. And I'm breathing and I'm thinking, that's another breath. Whose uh, breath is that? That's not me. And, then I, and I thought, don't think, just breathe. So I kept breathing and we breathed together for a while. And then things started getting a little chaotic and I asked my partner to push on my feet. And he didn't do it right. And then the trainers were looking and they came over and, and one guy and he pushed my feet just right, whatever that meant. And then the other one got behind my head and said, hold on to my wrist, and you have to push. You just push and push. And I thought, what am I doing? And I thought, don't think, just breathe. And then I had the thought, where is my mother? And I thought, why am I thinking that? And then, never mind, just breathe. And so I did. And when it was over, that part, I had experienced my original birth, which is a lot harder than dying. Wow. Coming in is a lot harder. And um, they said I made all these kind of little baby faces and uh, I wish it had been videoed. But anyway, so then they said you were to stand up, not talk to anybody. And then you went in another room and you drew a picture of what happened to you from your unconscious in a mandala drawing, a circle drawing. But when I stood up, I looked around the room at these people that I thought had been so weird on Sunday and I knew there was a God. I felt this awe and just phenomenal, um, wonderful feeling of being connected to them and that we were connected to the whole world and that there was a God. Mm. So I hadn't expected that, right? So I go into the other room and I, and I pick up some crayons and I'm drawing this. this um, I do a flower and grass and the sun. And uh, it was just nature, you know. And so anyway, and then we're told to go eat. Because if you go eat, it kind of grounds you a little bit more. Now, I thought this whole process took like 20 minutes, and I had been there four hours. Oh. <laughs> so, so I lost, you know, sense of time and space, right? And I was in the fourth dimension. <laughs> and then I came back, and so... When that happens to you, you're really disoriented. And um, so I went to lunch, and I came back, and then we're all to get in the circle, and the ones of us who had breathed, we were to show tell about our, our drawing. Well, I listened to people, and nobody had another breath come into them, right? So I wasn't mentioning that, because I didn't know what had happened to me. Um, and then Jackie Small said, well, that drawing is a spiritual, you had a spiritual awakening. You and had I'm, a rebirth. 
I'm gonna right? just I'm gonna just hold you right there because we have to take a break for the news, and I think that's okay. a good that's a good cliffhanger to leave it on for sure. <laughs> so we <laughs> we will do that. We are gonna take a break for the news when we come back on the other side. More with Dr. Herrick. If uh, if you want to find out more about her, uh, it's really easy to get to her website. All you have to do is go to and, and I just lost it. I have it on my screen. All you have to do is go to. Karen E. Herrick.com, H-E-R-R-I-C-K. We'll be right back with more in just a few moments. tonight with Reverend Karen E. Herrick, PhD, and uh, we are talking with her about, well, she was just sharing with us uh, this major spiritual experience that she had, and and Dr. Herrick, right before the break, you were getting into the, into the part where you were about ready to share this, or at least as much as you were ready to share with the group, and we, we kind of left it there on a cliffhanger. Okay. Uh, I didn't really share anything. I, I just showed the the um, drawing, and they said I had a spiritual experience, and um, that you know it was a rebirth. And I thought to myself, well, whatever happened to me with that breath, I'm going to have to figure it out, right? But I'm not going to say anything here because I just felt that mine was so weird compared to everybody else's. Um, but then eventually, it took me like a year and a half, and I did figure out that was the Holy Spirit, and um, it was. It's kind of like Bill Wilson, who said um, he was the alcoholic who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was in the hospital after 22 years of drinking. And his doctor said, when he, if he ever came back again, he was going into a mental hospital. And that was Bill's. I'll never, I'll never go to a mental hospital because I'm not crazy. And um, so his doctor said, well, if you come back, that's where I'm going to put you because this isn't working. So anyway, um, he he got down on his knees that night and he prayed. If there is a God, please take away my desire to drink. And the room lit up with light, and he said this breath, um, not of air, but a spirit went through him. And I thought, oh, my God, that's what I felt, a breath of spirit. And uh, it was strong. So um, I believe the Holy Spirit must be in charge of all these different types of air spiritual experiences. Um, and then, but then people started coming to my practice that um, really had different types of experiences. And like one guy left one day, we call it the doorknob issue, where they say something important as they're leaving. And he said, um, oh, I, I just want you to know, I leave my body at night, and, but sometimes I'm afraid I can't get back in. So I thought, well, never taught me this in social work school. <laughs> so I said, well, how do you usually get back in? He said, well, I just think about it and I get back in. And that's how you get back in your body if you're ever out in your spiritual body. Um, 
but they came in with all these things. And so I had to learn. And uh, so I took all kinds of courses. I took a training in California for nine months, went out there for a weekend every month and learned about different spiritual experiences from the men and women who wrote the books. And it was wonderful. I, it was just something I just, I loved learning about. Um, so that's why I teach it because uh, I do teach webinars um, online um, with two companies and I teach therapists about Jungian psychology and I have one on, um, on death about where, are, where did they go and are they okay? And um, I talk about the vagus nerve being the highway of the physical body and um, it's your 10th and longest nerve. It starts at the top of your head. It goes down around your neck, touches your amygdala, which is fight, flight, or frozen feelings. And that's how I learned about the vagus because you really help people with post-traumatic stress and panic, learn how to breathe. And when you breathe uh, to activate this vagus nerve, that, let me just tell you, it actually, after your neck, then it goes down your spinal column into your heart and into your stomach. And Darwin said that um, this, uh, your stomach would be triggered and it would tell your brain danger, danger, and then your heart rate would go up. And he called it the pneumogastric nerve. And, um, and now it's starting to be really popular because Dr. Porges, um, who wrote a book at 40 years of research on this nerve, talks, talks about how it affects so much. He doesn't talk about spirituality, so that's kind of my end of it. Um, but I, I believe we all have two bodies. You have a physical body and you have a spiritual body. It says this in the Bible too. St. Paul says, um, you come in on the physical and you leave on the spiritual, which is exactly how it happens. So, so then where is, go ahead. I was going to say, well, then would that vagus nerve be kind of the, the binding between the two? Well, I think it's like a highway. If, if you could, if, if you can Google uh, my book on the psychology of the soul and the paranormal on the cover is, is a, a picture of the nerve. And it's, it's, you know, comes in, you can see this uh, red mark coming into your um, head, going around your neck and going as I described it. Um, and the silver cord, I believe it's wrapped around the vagus nerve, but the silver cord is um, invisible because it's clairvoyant. Um, it's esoteric. So, okay, so what I've learned is that your soul is in this etheric body. And um, it's made out of atoms and protons and chemicals and, um, and ether from the etheric, you know, other side. So you have this soul that's held in your solar plexus and that normally you wouldn't have this soul leave the body, your physical body, unless you died. But now I think in order to make us more spiritual, we've been having since 1975 when Raymond Moody wrote about it. We've been having near-death experiences, right? Mm -hmm. But nobody says, how do you get out of the body and out to that other side? And, and the silver cord then uh, comes from the top of your head, and it gives you oxygen while you're out there flying around. Mm -hmm. A lot of people that have had near-death never see the silver cord, so they don't believe that um, you have one. But it's at the back of your neck, or it can come from your stomach also. And... Um, so they're out there flying around. I don't think they're looking for it, you know. And you have to be clairvoyant to see it. Um, and many of them aren't clairvoyant until they come back. And some of them are then have special, you know, powers and um, spiritual powers. So I can read to you what I think happens when you leave the body, if you'd like. Sure. Um, 
so um, physical body becomes taken down to a, a molecular level, an atomic level, activating the spiritual body to leave the physical, going up the vagus nerve, silver cord, usually out of the top of the head into the etheric clairvoyant universe. So when you become a spirit, leave your body, and when you die um, and you go up, they say you just float because your etheric body is not affected by gravity. So um, so you float, and you have this, like, route that you follow that follows what a homing pigeon does. So that's how you go to your place uh, with your people. Because they say when you leave this earth, you go to uh, uh, with like-minded people, Okay. So anyway, so this magnetic operation depends entirely on the pure effort of the soul using the spiritual etheric body. So the point of the etheric body, its job is to take your soul to the other side because your soul is immortal. All right, so how does that happen? Around the ears, a whirring noise is heard, and this sends out an impulse to change rotation of the body. The vibration is now getting stronger. This activates the sacrum through the vagus in the middle of our sympathetic and parasympathetic sections of the nervous system as chemicals are being released. This energy pierces the center of one's skull where the mandula oblongata and the pineal gland open the top chakra. People usually hear a click in the head area, which results in leaving one's body, expanding their consciousness with out-of-body and near-death experiences. And this bodily energy would be like the energy that powers the orgasmic response. Hmm. So this this is something that there are, you know, clear physical signs of something that people think is a metaphysical experience. Yes. That's that's pretty astounding. It is astounding. And Robert Monroe, he's he's written three books. He's dead now. Uh, but he created the Monroe Institute in Harbor, Virginia, that's still being run by his daughter, I understand, um, who's in her 60s. But if you want to know how to leave your body, go there. In fact, that's how I found the Farber Institute was when I, I um, had to do some research for this client who said he leaves his body. I thought, well, what do people do when they leave their body? And I found the Farber Institute, and he eventually went there. And met another lovely lady who um, left her body, and they had a romance. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. So, so I mean, people have been doing this forever. Robert Monroe never had a spiritual experience when he left his body, but there's three books he wrote, and um, he left, and he, he, he had all kinds of experiences, but he never saw the light. Um, you know, he didn't go to the other side and find out what it's like to die, um, but he did leave his body. And many people that worked with him to start this foundation. They were just people that, you know, went to work every day, and then on weekends they would join him in Virginia, and they would all, you know, try this. Um, he, he developed this hemp, hemp sync, it's called, where people listen to um, uh, oh, brainwaves on, uh, you know, on CDs, and, um, and they're taught how to meditate and leave, and you have to let go and be able to do that mm-hmm. if, if you have a desire to do that. Yeah, I've, I've, uh, I have another show that I do uh, on the internet, and I've I've interviewed a lot of folks about Hemisync and 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 people from the Monroe Institute about it. It's uh, it's fascinating stuff. 
I want to roll back a little bit to what you had mentioned before, because you talked about Bill Wilson, and for those uh, you know who who, who might have missed that part of it, he was the founder of Alcoholics Anonymous. So uh, there's a host who's on the morning show at this station, who uh-huh. he's he's you know over 40 years sober now, and. Our, he, he has a friend uh, who lives in Lilydale in the summertime, Lilydale, New York, the, oh, right. the town full of spiritual mediums. And, uh, and, and she said, I want you to come out um, because of your experience with being an alcoholic in the past. And, and I want, you know, I want you to bring Tim and you guys are going to come out and you're going to enjoy Lilydale for the weekend on me. But also you're going to take this course about, Bill Wilson and about his spiritual experiences. And so we we took this very intensive, it was like an eight or nine hour course over two days where they went through uh, Bill's entire story and how how spiritualism is ingrained with everything Alcoholics Anonymous. And it, it was very fascinating to me as somebody who is not from that background, who doesn't have, you know, problems with alcohol. I, I barely ever drink. And, you know, it was just fascinating to me to see how it all runs through it. And then at the end of it, there was one of the mediums who who lives there and works there, Lisa Williams, actually, you know, opened herself up and, and Bill Wilson came through. And we oh, we were able to communicate with him. And it was just it was the most mind blowing thing to to hear about that side of it, something that I never knew how deeply that is. You know, when I hear about the spirituality of, of AA, I think, you know, that people are that it's religious that it's God, that it's, you know, Christianity. And, it, and it's actually the opposite of that. It's, it's devoid of any of that. Yes. Yes. It was just it's a, a wonderful spiritual program. AA. <clears throat> and, and, and to see the way that it's held people on that level. Um, I, yes. I mean, I don't know that it would have worked if it, if it wasn't on that level. Right. Right. So, well, it, yeah, he had, he had a friend, Ebby and Ebby was in a mental hospital and then Ebby would come out and he'd be fine. And then he'd drink again, you know, like they all did. But Ebby came to visit him at that hospital the next day, and Ebby was reading William James's book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. I mean, what a, what a coincidence, synchronicity that is. And he said to Bill, you've had a spiritual experience. I'm just reading about them, right? And, um, and then Bill found out that uh, one of his other buddies uh, had gone to Carl Jung, because uh, if you went to Jung or Freud, you went over to Europe and you stayed there a year or two and paid for, you know, therapy. So it, you had to have money to do this but then he when he came back to america after a while he he started to drink again and then he went back to Jung, and Jung told him you have to have a spiritual experience that's the only thing that's going to help you and um and bill wilson wrote to him i think a couple of times and then uh it was carl uh, young's turn to write back and he died but they would have had a wonderful um correspondence hmm. and and it really it really is um it shows how deep of a level that you can you can make that connection, and also to have somebody there who was a talented medium to be able to to kind of bring him forward. And I know that you're somebody who advocates involving mediums in in the healing process. Oh, I do. Yes, for clients that are in chronic grief, I have um, I recommend certain mediums that they go to, and um, I have to teach them a lot about mediumship because. Uh, there's so so many of them are religious or were taught religion um, in their you know youth, and they're so afraid to go. So I you know I teach them all about that and and especially like I had this one gentleman you know he was in chronic grief for like nine ten months, and his wife had died you know quickly on the kitchen floor, and 
he was left with these two kids and he came to me and um, I kept saying, we've got to parent these kids. You know, this grief is, and he was so guilt-ridden. And, and I have found in my practice that men are more guilt-ridden than women, it seems like. Although, you know, women have their guilt, but my God. So anyway, I said, and I had it in because his wife had been a twin and I had the twin sister years before that. And then I found out she called me when her sister died. She said, I went to a medium and I talked to her and she's okay. So I said, good. So I said, okay, well, your sister-in-law went to a medium, right? Right. And how is she doing now? that it's been nine months. And he said, she's doing pretty good. Yeah, right. So um, maybe, you know, talking to her sister um, has helped her know where she is and connect to that love. And that's because love is the greatest energy there is. And that's what you need right now. Because I have to start helping you parent these kids. Okay, he said he would go. So he went. And um, and he came back. And when he walked in, his shoulders were down. And he was so relaxed. I couldn't believe it. And because I told him, I said, we can't guarantee she's going to come in. But your parents died last year. Your aunt and uncle died 18 months ago. I said, you got people up there. Somebody's going to come in. And he said, they all came in. <laughs> and he said, but I'm not going back again. I said, I don't want you to go back again. Are you connected to your wife now? Do you know she's there? Do you know it's not your fault? Yes. That's what I wanted. Well, in, in, I'm somebody who was skeptical, even, you know, believing in paranormal phenomena and all that starting the show. I was skeptical about mediums and psychics until I started, you know, I wish she was here with me tonight, but she's um, she's attending to some family business. My co-host, Stephanie Burke, is a, is a psychic medium, and she's the one who kind of changed my mind. And I, I realized how much of the healing potential there is in people that that have those gifts and, and, and that are able to utilize those gifts to help others. But there's also there's also the problem of sometimes people become overly dependent on them and they can't go through the stages of grief. They can't let go and they want to keep that psychic coming back every week, that medium coming back every week so that they don't have to say goodbye to their loved one. And and, and so I'm sure that for you that there's a, a, a balance that has to be struck, bringing them into helping with the process, but also not making them become a dependency. Oh, yeah. I haven't found that uh, the people that have come to me have gotten dependent at all. In fact, well, the mediums they go to say, you know, you could come back in a year. Well, yeah, that's one way to do it. <laughs> you know, you're not coming back to see me next week. You're coming back to see me next year. But um, but I, I've been to Lilydale, too, and I've met women that have lost their husbands, and they go to every medium they can find, you know? Yeah. What what I love about Lilydale too is I mean first of all I'm never I'm not like a big like love and light person you know I I'm just kind of like right. the world is the world whatever but when I was there I felt it you can feel the the change in the energy when you're there yeah. and it and it definitely had a sense of of positivity and uplifting I mean I I can't think of a place you know if you ask me like all right where do you want to go back and and spend a weekend uh, you know I don't even think about like wanting to go back to some of the places I've had great vacations at I'm like I want to go back to Lilydale because I, I want to feel that feeling again that's wonderful <laughs> and I'll, I'll get back there soon uh, I've got enough friends in the area that it's 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 a it's a good good trip to plan out there um, so let's let's talk a little bit then about why this isn't something that the medical field approaches more that you know we hear we hear these stories, as you, you mentioned it. You have doctors who describe miraculous things that are happening. We have doctors who describe, you know, seeing 
strange phenomena take place that they just can't explain. Uh, Dr. Eben Alexander has been writing about this stuff for a long time. Uh, yeah. Why is it that the, the medical field is so reluctant to embrace something that is right before them so often and so much of the time? Well, I mean, I think it's history. Descartes said, you know, we have to separate uh, church from state and all that, and they just, well, even Bill Wilson's um, doctor, the morning after, Bill Wilson said, um, he told him what happened, and the doctor said, well, I don't know anything about that. I'm a doctor. But whatever happened to you last night, he said, you stay with it because you, you look better today than you've ever looked before. Well, I don't know that there's a lot of medical doctors that would even say that. They just don't want to get involved in that. Yeah, they, they and I think that there's, you know, when it comes to the empirical versus the metaphysical, it's easier to, to to lean on the empirical because you can look at that and ex, and explain it. When something comes at you that's a little bit more inexplicable, then you lose that authority over it when you're trying to explain it to the patient. You can't say, well, this happened because of this, and if you do this, this will happen. You kind of just have to throw your hands up and say, I don't know, I'm, I'm on the same level as you are with this, and, and I right. wonder if they feel like that's not really living up to the job that they're they're supposed to do for that patient. Well, it could be, and they haven't been trained in it. So if we had somebody, you know, somebody like me who could just talk to them about the spirit world and what that's like and what people have found and, you know, when they've gone to the other side and come back, um, this is, you know, they would need that part of training uh, in their in their medical career. But they don't even, you know, do that, I don't think. I don't know of any medical school that's doing that. And I don't know, are you aware on Netflix there's a series called Surviving Death? Um, I've, I'm not sure if I've watched that yet or not. Yes. It, it's five one-hour sessions of, um, of paranormal experiences. The first hour is on near-death experiences. And I would recommend that you go on Netflix, and it's a couple years old now, Surviving Death Series, and it's free. And just watch the first hour, if nothing else, because it tells what happens when a, near, a person goes over and has a near-death and comes back. And that's, it's a, they did it beautifully. Now, the rest of the hours are a little different. And um, I've had a friend who the next hour is on trance mediumship, which is those mediums that go into trance, and that was like in the 1800s. Um, and, um, you know, and different voices come out of, of, of them. Um, and she said, I, no, I wouldn't watch it after that. She said, that was scary. So <laughs> I don't know why they put trance mediumship. I would have put that number five. Because, because nobody really sees that now, unless you go into research, and I'm sure you can find transmediumship, especially in England, where the spiritualist church is, you know, a lot more um, out there than, you know, uh, popular than here. Um, but anyway, um, I, I would uh, recommend that uh, hour number one, and uh, just watch the near death thing, and then. If you skip skip number two, if you think it's scary, and they have um, a group that people can go to if, if they're in grief, uh, Forever Family Foundation, and um, and then they have a just a typical bunch of people that get together and they try to do the Ouija board and that kind of stuff, you know. So it's it's a lot of different things on the paranormal, but the near death story is just wonderful. 
We, we, we got a question in on app chat from Matt in Springfield. He says, when a psychologist who happens to be a practicing Christian, so for example, Dr. Phil is diagnosing a patient that claims God is giving them instructions, who is to say whether the patient is, is mentally ill or if God is actually speaking to them, as is common in the Bible? I mean, I know that that's something that comes up a lot uh, when people look at schizophrenics and people who hear voices. There was a lot of times when people would have mediumship abilities that would be diagnosed as schizophrenics because they would say, well, you shouldn't really be hearing these voices, but yet these voices are real to the people that are hearing them. Yes, yeah, so the difference between a spiritual experience and someone who is a psychotic, which is what a schizophrenic would be called, um, is a spiritual experience usually humbles the person. And they can tell you that story over and over again. They never forget it. Um, and um, it's usually at the, at the end of it, eventually they find meaning in their life because of it. Now, someone who is in a psychotic break, they are very grandiose, and they can't tell you the same story over and over. Okay. And um, they're so grandiose that, you know, it, it, it just even sounds crazy, and it is crazy, and it has no meaning for them. So, that, that's, so inter that, that's that interesting. That would be the difference. That's interesting. So it, it doesn't have meaning for them? Like they just... The psychosis? Well, no, other... Other than they're going to stick with it, you know, no matter what. But it doesn't oh. make their life better. See, a spiritual experience makes them humble and they've, they've felt God or they've felt something in their heart. Okay, I see what you mean, yeah. Because uh, I was just thinking of people who have had these experiences where, you know, God talked to them and they, you know, they suddenly feel like they're some, some kind of a prophet. You know, that, that has meaning to them. But I see, I see what you're saying. It's, it, the meaning is more about uh, empowering them than it is actually, you know, the message itself. Yes, like, I talked to Christ, and Christ said this, and Christ is behind me, you know, blah, blah, blah. I and like... That's just... Go ahead. I like the uh, the line that Ozzy has, you know, I spoke to God this morning, and he doesn't like you. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but that's, but that's, you know, you know, t talking about the mental health part of things, that is something that is missing from mental health discussions. And I know that it's something that you talk about uh, is that there there is a need for mental health professionals to have a better idea about spiritual experiences and, and phenomena like this. Oh, absolutely, yeah. And I, I'm amazed, you know, people come to my classes and they love it. They really do. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's the first time they've ever heard, you know, about Jung and about transpersonal psychology, and, uh, and they want to find out more. And the people that came to me as clients, too, or come to me, um, you know, it's been proven, Kenneth Ring wrote about this, that, um, people that were in a traumatic, dysfunctional home, they had the ability to disassociate more as children. And so then as adults, they have more of an ability to disassociate, and they will have more spiritual experiences than this, somebody who didn't grow up in a traumatic, dysfunctional home. Hmm. Hey, do, do you find that there are... There are people who work in the mental health field who do want to believe in this and do do have a foot in this, but yet their their professional training is what keeps them from being able to bring it into the discussion with their patients. Well, um, I mean, you can discuss anything you want with your patient. Maybe not in an agency because you have to make all those notes. Um, you know, they you know they have forms that you have to fill out. Um, 
Ask me that question again. I'm sorry, I just lost it. Well, I'm just wondering if there are people who are mental health professionals who who do look into these things and believe in these things, but yet they're afraid to bring it into the conversation with their patients. They're afraid to say like this, you know, this might have been a a spiritual experience like that. Because I, I know well, I, I know in my personal experiences with mental health professionals, you know, they know about what I do, but yet they never they never contemplated that side of things as being a, a you know part of what my everyday experience might have been yeah well my the people that come for these classes that i teach online they want to know more and um and they have some of them a lot of them have psychic abilities themselves but they can't tell anybody that you know if they work in a hospital or an agency they just keep that to themselves which is you know doing a disservice to them and everybody else right but you know like I had a nurse friend who years ago, and she had psychic abilities, and she worked in a nursing home, and um, she just used them quietly. And <laughs> she had a um, a cleaning lady that asked her one night, you know, how come your clients get better faster? <laughs> hmm. And she said, well, I pray with them, and so that was that was her answer. So some people are doing it quietly, you know. Well, and I think you kind of have to because you've got people who are, I mean, I know people in my everyday life that come up to me and say, I've had the most profound experience. And they tell you about something that in the in the world of the paranormal is, is really mundane. But, you know, it means so much to them because they've never had something like that happen to them before. But then you have people who have had, you know, these gigantic spiritual slaps in the face and they just want to push it aside and not pay attention to it because it would change their worldview too much to have to accept it. And that's why we have to educate more and more, I think. Because I had a, um, a gentleman come to me, 28 years old, and uh, years ago, and I think this was after my spiritual experience, and he, um, he was so uptight. And um, he came from an alcoholic home, and he had just broken up with his girlfriend. And somebody had told him I helped with the relationship. So he was there, and I did my usual assessment. And I said, well, you seem very afraid. I said, it's, you know, it's hard to come to a therapist, so maybe that's it. And so we'll see next week or two weeks, you know, how you feel when you come in, just as tight when he comes in. So I, I had a PC by that time, and I was taking notes. I put the PC down, and I said to him, uh, I think there's something that you're withholding from me. And if that's true, you and I need to trust each other if we're going to work on this relationship. And so if there is something you're withholding, I need to know. And he said, well, there was this one thing that happened. But his priest told him never to tell anybody that it happened because they would think he was crazy. So I said, well, I'm um, licensed to tell you whether you're crazy or not. And so right now I want you to know you're not crazy. And I don't think what you're going to tell me is going to convince me of that. So can you do that? So he said, sure. Oh, he said he. His father drank every night, and he, he worked at a restaurant, so he came in like 10, 10.30. And um, they started to fight, as they usually do. But this one night, there were knives on the chopping block, and he said his father picked one up eventually and threw it at him. And he said what William James said they would say, I don't have the words to explain this to you, but when I do, you're going to think I'm crazy. I said, okay, so what happened? Well... He threw the knife at me, and the sheet of, like, plexiglass came down in front of me, and the knife bounced off of it. So I just said, um, well, that was a, a force field of some kind. And um, 
I said, that's wonderful that that happened. I said, that's called a spiritual experience. Now, the big problem with that is we can't count on that happening again. Mm. So you don't ever fight around your father and knives and go eat in the living room or something. Um, so and you didn't come here for that. But if you want me to explain that to you more, you and I can do that. Uh, and maybe when you get older, you'll, you'll really want to know more about it. Uh, but there are people that have had those types of experiences, and um, they write about them in their books. So if you ever want a bibliography, I'll give you one. So he said, fine. And he was like the, the, the other guy that went to the medium. He just slumped in the chair. He was so much more relaxed that he wasn't crazy, and he wasn't going to have to try to pretend he wasn't crazy, you know? I mean, I, I can't imagine going through something like that. That just sounds so astounding to have that happen. I know. Oh, I know. And, and when I did my uh, research for my doctorate, there was one lady, and she said, um, there's something I didn't tell you. I did a pre-test, a post-test, and then six months later, I had to call them up and find out if anything spiritual had happened to them. And she said, uh, I was coming down uh, from a ski trip, and she, it was blinding snowstorm. And she said, my car went off the road. And she said, there was a force field that pushed my car and came back on the road. And she used that force field, right? And I, she said, have you ever heard of that? I said, well, I heard about that force field once, and but it had to do with a knife being thrown. And she said, well, it is really strong. And I said, well, I'm so glad you told me that. Because it reminded me of the Holy Spirit breath. That was really strong, too. I mean, it, it, I, I, you're right. You don't want to have to depend on this, but to know that these <laughs> things can happen is, is, is pretty phenomenal. And it's something that, you know, people will look at that and say, well, how do we how do we explain that? And I think that it's one of those things that if you if you spend so much time trying to find the explanation for it, you're going to you're going to take away some of the, the the magic of it. Well, I mean, there's all kinds of ways you can explain it. And that's that's what I try to teach um, other therapists is you don't have to have had one to believe it. You have you know, is there a problem with you believing that this could happen? But your job is to get the story out and to find as much um, support, you know, educationally that you can find and ha have it be meaningful to the person. And if, if you stick with them, it's going to be meaningful because you're both going to learn from it. Hmm. I want to ask you about a, a word that comes up in, in your work, uh, neurotheology. Oh, well, that was, um, that must be 15 years ago now, at least, um, where they did this... Um, testing of meditators in this hospital in Philadelphia. I think that's where it was. And um, they had these um, these people that were professional meditators, you know, they do it for years and years. And what they did was they were hooked up to machines and they got to a certain part of their meditation when the meditator knew that they were connected to a higher power or whatever they called that, you know, a higher consciousness. And they would, I don't know what kind of... Um, you know, outward sign they would give. But they found that in the brain, they connected to what they called the God gene. And that was called neurotheology. And that's all I can remember about it. But I can send you an article about it if you want. I know I have one somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I know that there's been, there's been, um, I've, I've, I think I've heard the term uh, put out there before. And to me, I look at any kind of spirit, like, so... 
I, I get into a lot of trouble here, especially on, on the radio, on, on, on the broadcast radio, because I question a lot of the belief in organized religion. And, and so people think that I'm anti-religious. And I'm not anti-religious. I'm anti-dogma. Um, I'm more... I'm more about people finding that spirituality that they need to find and being able to incorporate that into their lives in a way where they don't have to have all the pomp and circumstance and, and tithing to the church around it. And so for me, I look at things like this where you can have that direct connection with God as being some, or, you know, whatever the, the greater power may be, as something that I think is hugely beneficial to mankind and probably, you know, the most important work that can come out of this type of research. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Do you do, yeah. you do you find though that there's a reluctance of people to accept that because because of what religion has taught them and because of the the um the 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 rules that it's put around things? Oh, absolutely. You know, that's the biggest thing about mediumship because they've been told that these people are witches or whatever, and um, you know, and there are just like anything else, there's good mediums and bad mediums. So um, that's why you know you try to go to a good one like you would anything. Um, and they are resistant, but for some reason they, they're interested in my class or they're interested in, in just asking me questions and because something has happened. And many times that happens when somebody has died. So that's why grief is so important in this because many times they have a spiritual experience over losing a loved one, you know, where, the, you know, they, <clears throat> their phone number keeps showing up on the phone, excuse me, and, um, or they feel the presence in their bedroom at night, or the lights keep going on and off, the TV doesn't work, and, and nobody can find anything wrong with it. And I said, well, that's a spirit trying to reach you. And because spirits play with electricity, for sure. And um, <clears throat> so really, yes. And so I try to get an article or a book they can read, and um, or you know, go down to Edgar Casey Foundation and take a class down there, and just ask your questions. Um, or you, know, you and I will, will look into it. But I try to show them that there, this has been happening forever. I mean, it, mediumship has been happening since the late 1840s. And we have enough research now that, you know, <laughs> you know it could tell us anything. Um, in fact, I don't know if you've heard about the Bix um, Foundation in, in Las Vegas. I'm not that, sure. Um, yeah. So anyway, uh, I, I use some of my teaching materials from that. Um, I applied... Uh, to um, to write one of the essays, and I did. I didn't make it, but um, I get all their information now, which is really nice. And they have 29 winners, and he spent over a million and a half dollars paying these people for their uh, research. And so you, all it is is reading those stories, reading that research that everybody else had been doing, you know, in the 1800s, and knowing that this is proof that would stand up in a court of law. And that's what he said we should have, just proof that would stand up in a court of law. So a lot of therapists when, or if, that I teach, oh, somebody's really studying this and they're giving money for it? Yes. Um, and there's 29 winners and you can download their papers and you can read it. And if you have any questions, you know, you can call me. And so stuff like that really does help that people are doing this education or, you know, trying to uh, prove it over and over again. We, we really are, I think, at the, the perfect um, crossroads of where spirituality and science can, can combine if everybody can kind of just get rid of the, the, the preconceived notions and the, and the unnecessary, unnecessary restrictions that they put on both sides of it. 
But And most people, though, Tim, I find that if they get into it, they're going to get special feelings. They're going to get something. And their intuition is going to increase. Um, they're going to get songs on the radio. Um, they're going to find a, another connection that they never thought they could have uh, with somebody who, who passed over. That's why I think that mediumship needs to be understood more and more and how it happens, you know, through the body. And um, why, why do we get good ideas in the showers? Because the water hits the back of our neck where the vagus nerve touches the amygdala. And, and you get one, and that's the easiest way for a spirit to give you some ideas. The spirits don't talk, they just send thoughts. Um, so if you just keep learning all these little things, maybe in the shower they're gonna get good idea and maybe it's gonna be like, well, mom kind of talked to me. Oh, that's good. That's what can happen in the shower. Well, that's amazing because I, you know, the running joke between my co-host Stephanie and I is that all my best ideas come to me in the shower. And so like when she needs advice or she needs help or, you know, she's looking for some, some sort of creative um, suggestion for something she's working on, she'll always say, hey, next time you're in the shower, I need your help with this. And and yes. I, it's always been a joke, but now see, you've, you've proven, you've scientifically proven that there's a reason why all my good ideas come to me in the shower. <laughs> Well, because it's standing meditation, you know. You can also get good ideas driving because that's sitting meditation. Mm -hmm. So it's an easy time for a spirit to try to reach you. Well, I, I also think, too, that you are... You know, you talked before about being able to stop thinking and kind of just be in the moment and, and, and not worry about having the thoughts come in. And I think certainly driving and, and, and showering are two of those times that I feel like I most can, I either really get buried deep into my thoughts or I can kind of let those thoughts go and, and just kind of focus on what I'm doing, especially when I used to drive my motorcycle. Like I couldn't think about anything else because I wanted to be alert to what was going on in the road, but I just found that I was, it was very Zen for me that I was just, you know, driving around completely in the moment and only aware of, you know, what I needed to be aware of in my surroundings. That's called being in the now. <laughs> I and it's, it's interesting. Um, Jung, when he, uh, when he broke off from Freud, he had, I don't know how much you know about Jung, but he had all these terrible nightmares and dreams. They thought he was going crazy. But his family was religious, and so he, he knew people had visions, so he called them visions. And he worked, um, and he wrote everything down in these dreams, and after seven years, he put them in the Red Book. And if, if you haven't seen Jung's Red Book, you need to go to a, a library or wherever they have it, because it is um, very artistic, and it is all the dreams that he had. And in this one dream, eventually he gets this uh, um, man who's a guru, and he has a, he has kingfisher wings. And when he came into his dream that night, the next morning, Jung found a kingfisher bird dead in his yard. Mm. And so he, you know, always has this synchronicity that happens. But Philemon would come into his dreams many times, and he'd give him all this advice. And one, one night, Philemon said to him, you know, you, you really are, he didn't say it was narcissistic, but you really think that every thought you have in your head is yours. And it's not. You can't take credit for all these thoughts. <laughs> I thought that was wonderful. <laughs> I, I just, so, uh, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was going to say, I just, I, I find it all fascinating. And, and what I, what I find the most interesting about it is that you are finding people who are open to this and, and willing, willing to learn and willing to go down this. And it shows that we are having a great, I think, and I've, I've been saying this uh, even before the pandemic, but especially post pandemic, we do have a great kind of shifting consciousness that's going on. Oh, I hope so. I mean, we really need it. 
But did, are you seeing it, you know, out there in, in, in well, person? Have, and People that come to me, of course, I get a lot of people that come to me now, you know, who have spiritual experiences or something weird happened to me. What do you think it is? But I've been in business 35 years, right? So, you know, in my little area, I'm really known and I'm on the Internet. And so people do ask me. So I get a lot of people that most people wouldn't get asking me this question. So, yeah, I see it. But I want it to be more. <laughs> I want more and more people. Thousands to ask these questions, you know? Yeah. And, and as we get toward that and, and as we start to build toward that, I think it will have a profound effect on on, on all different parts of our society you know that that finding finding out better things about the deeper side of ourselves is only going to make us get along with each other better oh absolutely and one of the things i suggested to bix was that we i wanted to start some kind of a school where we could have therapists and mediums working together because that would really help you know a client because a lot of this stuff is you know past life stuff and you know you know some of them are possessed and just different kinds of things that we could find out. So I love that you have a medium that works with you. That's that's phenomenal. I mean, it's it's been it's been a huge eye opener for me, and uh, you know, for the first seven years we did the show, we didn't have that. But now that she's here with us, you know, it really does make a difference and, and keeps us going. And in just the final few moments that we have here, uh, Dr. Harrick, how can people get in touch with you if they want to be able to take classes with you, if they want to be able to learn from you? How how can they reach out? Okay, well. My email is Karen, K-A-R-E-N, at Karen Herrick, H-E-R-R-I-C-K, dot com. You can email me. Uh, you can also go on um, Amazon, and my books are listed there. Um, I have three, um, uh, Psychology of the Soul and the Paranormal, talks all about this, what we've been talking about tonight, and mediumship, and Jung and James. And then I have a children's book, the Grandma, What is a Soul?, where my grandson asked me, um, said he didn't want me to die. And I said, well, I wouldn't die till I got really old. But when I did, I would be an ancestor and I would come back and watch over him. And um, and he said, Grandma, what is a soul? Because I mentioned that somehow. And so I had to explain that in the car. And uh, so it's a children's story. And then uh, on the back of the book, I have um, a part for parents, if you, if you want to read that. And then I also have one I wrote for alcoholic and dysfunctional people and the roles in the family and that you're not finished yet. So that's all on Amazon. And then uh, you mentioned my website, KarenEHerrick.com. And if you go on there, uh, you can see other podcasts and other things that I have done and just kind of get an idea of, uh, you know, what I do. Well, we thank you for joining us tonight. We definitely want to have you come back on in the future. Oh, I would love to come back, Jim. I thank you. All right. You have a great night and a, and a great rest of your weekend. Okay, I will. You too. Bye-bye. And uh, again, that is uh, Reverend Karen E. Herrick, Ph.D., Dr. Karen Herrick. You can uh, check her out again, KarenEHerrick.com, H-E-R-R-I-C-K.com. And thank you to everybody for tuning in tonight. But uh, we are just about out of time for this episode. If you missed any part of it, you can check us out on podcast. You can get us at Spotify, Apple Podcasts. 
Uh, where else are we now? Amazon Music. Anywhere you get your podcast from, we've got it all out there now because uh, we've we've switched over to Anchor and they're spreading it out to all the places that it was before and even beyond. If you have any trouble getting the podcast, though, just email me, Tim at, w, uh, Tim at SpookySouthCoast.com, and we'll figure it out. You can also email any of us, SpookyCrew at SpookySouthCoast.com, with any thoughts, ideas, suggestions, comments, criticisms, favorite snacks, whatever it may be. And uh, and also make sure you follow us on social media. You can find Spooky South Coast on Facebook and you can follow us on Twitter at SpookySC. And uh, we will be back next week. We'll be talking some more paranormal topics. And then the week after that, it's going to be our big 17th anniversary show. So until next week, stay spooktacular. WBSM.